Thank you, Mandy. Yes, you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This morning and tonight, we will finish up this series of messages in the Beatitudes. And I, I don't know about you, but I've been through more learning labs in the last few weeks than I care to go through, uh, just trying to learn what it means to live this kind of life which is the believer's life. This is how you distinguish believers. We have a lot of religion in this world today, and a lot of people go to church, but not everybody that goes to church loves Jesus. Just because somebody's name is on a roll doesn't mean you can look at them and their lives exemplify Jesus Christ. When we come to the Beatitudes, we see the lifestyle of the believer, how a believer is supposed to act, how a believer is supposed to live, how a believer is supposed to react and respond. And nothing is more of a reactive verse than the verse we will look at today, but I want to begin again in verse 2 and us reading all the Beatitudes because, again, they flow in a process. These are steps up a ladder. You do not take this verse that we look at today in isolation and say, I know what that means. It has a meaning in its context. Verse 2, he opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now let's talk quickly about the misconceptions and the meaning. And you see a lot in your notes there, so I won't uh, elaborate a lot on, on this except to talk about the misconceptions, and there are a lot of them. To be a peacemaker has been misconstrued by so many people. It was misconstrued in the Vietnam War with peace symbols and and liberal theologians preached on this passage and used, blessed are the peacemakers. There are some things worth fighting for. There are some things worth dying for. There are some things worth standing for. And when he talks about blessed are the peacemaker, he's not talking about... Uh, an appeaser or a compromiser. There's a different mindset here. Jesus did not say, blessed are the peace lovers. There, there are people today who are crying for peace in the Middle East and, and they want Israel to have peace at all costs. Forget about what God promised you. Forget about what is rightfully yours in the eyes of the God of heaven and let somebody else have it. They've lived that way for a long time. My Bible says there's going to be a day when they're going to have that land back, and that's one of the signs of the ends of time. And guess what? They got the land back. And if I was them, I wouldn't give it up. It's just my opinion. Because it was their land given to them by God. Anybody else that's on it is a squatter, and they need to be kicked off of it. That's just my opinion. You have a right to yours. You cannot negotiate from weakness negotiate from strength. And Israel has one promise still on their side, that God's going to give them a land. 
God has not revoked that promise, even though they have rejected the Messiah. That promise still stands. There are a lot of problems that we face when we talk about uh, peacekeeping. The Bible begins with peace, it ends with peace, but I tell you, in between Cain and Abel, wars and rumors of wars, fighting, dissensions, all kinds of problems that happen within the pages of Scripture. And, and you don't have to look around very far in our community to know that there are problems, that there's tension and that there's unrest, that there's violence. We can put a man on the moon. We can send a, a spaceship to Mars. We can put a space station circling the earth, but we cannot make the streets of Albany, Georgia safe to walk at night. We have a problem. There is no peace in our culture. The reason there's no peace is twofold. Number one, Satan opposes it. Satan opposes peace. He's against it. If you think Satan wants people to be at peace, this is not in your notes. Just You're going to keep looking and get totally frustrated. So that doesn't give me any peace. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry. Satan opposes peace. He is against anything that brings reconciliation to people. He is against anything that solves the problems of people. And the second reason why there's never going to be peace on earth is because man is disobedient to God. Here's the key. Before you can promote peace, you must possess it. You cannot promote something you don't have. In fact, in Isaiah 57 and verse 21, it says, There is no peace for the wicked. The Scripture says, Until you know the Prince of Peace you'll never know peace. And until you know the Prince of Peace, you cannot promote peace. You see, all you can promote is a temporary truce, a moment of silence. But God has a word on this subject, and he takes us in this passage, and when he talks about peace, that's a very familiar word, shalom, the Hebrew word shalom. Let me give you a definition of shalom. This may be a good word for us to insert in our vocabulary. Instead of, hi, how are you? Good to see you. Hey, have a good day. All the stuff that the world says, if you want a witnessing opportunity, just start saying to people, shalom. And they'll ask you what that means. Here's what shalom means. Shalom means, I desire for you all the righteousness and good that God can give you. I desire for you all the righteousness and good that God can give. When you say shalom to someone, you're saying to them, I want for you everything God has for you. I want you to experience and walk in the fullness of everything that God has for you. The peace, the blessings, the tranquility, the power, the righteousness, the goodness, all that God has for you, I want for you. I want you to have that inner tranquility of knowing the peace of God. That's what the word means. And when God gives his word on this subject, he's not so much talking about stopping bombing as he is starting to rebuild. You know, America is an incredible country. We will bomb a nation into submission and then turn around and spend hundreds of millions of dollars to rebuild the nation that we just bombed. That's what we did with the Marshall Plan after World War II. America bombed Germany until Germany surrendered finally surrendered, it bombed Japan, and then we turn around and pour millions and millions of dollars 
into that country. You see, that's the difference between a country that wants to make war and a country that wants to make peace. Out of strength, we resolve problems, and then we try to fix the problems that are there afterwards. Now, this is what this means, is to bring two parties together that were formerly alienated. When I am a peacemaker, I am bringing people together that were alienated. It's the kind of life that God blesses. And I want to ask you to turn to the book of James. James is that incredible little book in the back of the New Testament that talks about works and how we show our Christianity and how we reveal to the world what New Testament faith looks like. James says faith without works is dead, but there's an interesting uh, illustration of being a peacemaker found in James chapter 3. James chapter 3. By the way, Jehovah Shalom is one of the covenant names of God. So God is in the interest of peace. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, he is called the God of peace. But I want you to read this illustration in James 3 and verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first, and notice what wisdom is. It's pure, then peaceable. Notice that he ties purity and peace together. There can be no peace unless there's a pure motive and a pure heart. He does not say it's pure and then it's all these other. First thing he says coming out of purity is that when there's wisdom, that wisdom has a pure motive and then it is peaceable, then gentle and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, blessed are the peacemakers. It could also be translated, blessed are the peace workers, those who work to resolve conflict, those who work to resolve problems. Blessed are those who sow the seed of righteousness in peace. Here's the question we ask ourselves. How good am I at sowing the seeds of peace? Everybody in our society is trying to pick a fight. Everybody in our society wants to dig their heels in and go to war over something. And we hear a lot of talk in politics today about being bipartisan. I want to tell you what you have to do to be bipartisan. You've got to lay your, your agenda aside and even the possibility of your re-election aside so that for the good of other people, you can do what is best for the whole, not what is best for the part. Bipartisanship means working for the whole sowing seeds for the whole. And as long as we have people who dig their heels in over this little issue or that little issue, then we're never going to find people in politics who can bring about peace. How good am I at sowing seeds of peace? The principle is, of the same principle as sowing crops. Now, what he's saying is, don't underestimate the power of a seed. You plant a seed of peace with righteousness. You have a pure motive in doing it. And see the power of that seed to bear fruit. The peacemaker is always trying to sow righteousness. Now here's what that means. A peacemaker often has to get involved in conflicts. 
A peacemaker often has to deal with a problem that he would rather ignore or she would rather ignore. I mean, there are times when I just would like to go back to bed and pull the covers over my head and just forget about some things. But I can't do that. And a peacemaker is not somebody who runs from trouble. A peacemaker is somebody who confronts trouble and confronts an issue. Let me tell you what. A person who will not confront an issue and who will not confront a principle and who will not stand up for something that is right, that person is a coward. They're not a peacemaker. Anybody can hide in the tall grass. That person's a coward, you see, because if you don't deal with issues and if you don't confront issues and if you don't try to work to resolve something, ultimately something's going to blow up and something's going to happen that's going to cause a deterioration of relationships. And so the peacemaker has to come in and say, look, there's some things that are not right here. There's some things that need to be changed here. There's some attitudes some issues that need to be confronted. There's some positions that need to be changed. Jesus is saying, happy are those who work at resolving conflict. A peacemaker is a person that tries to release tension, not create it. They seek solutions. They don't try to argue. They don't try to get everybody on their side. They try to seek solutions. A peacemaker is somebody who will work to calm the waters, not trouble them. They will work for resolution and restitution. Did you ever notice that when Jesus came, he didn't come to point fingers? He came to point people to the cross. When Jesus came, he came and it's announced in Scripture that he was the Prince of Peace. And yet the Prince of Peace came and he said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Because when you stand up for righteousness and what is right, it is going to cut a dividing line with people who have other agendas other than righteousness, who have other platforms other than righteousness. Jesus said, my peace will also divide. And Jesus is the most divisive person that's ever been on the face of the earth. Because with Jesus Christ, you either believe what he said about himself or you call him a liar. There is no in-between. And Jesus Christ came as the Prince of Peace, and he came to give us his peace. Why? So we'd share it with other people. Now remember, these are the character traits of Christians. These are the believer's beatitudes. It's the beatitude lifestyle. And Jesus never intended for this beatitude to stand apart from the other ones. Let's go back through it again very quickly. I'm poor in spirit. That means I'm humble before God. I realize my desperate condition. I mourn over my sin against God. I learn to be meek. That means to be controlled by God. I hunger and thirst to do what is right. I'm a person that shows mercy because I've been shown mercy. Then I'll be a peacemaker. Now let me tell you why this is important. Being a peacemaker is the apex, the summit, the pinnacle of what it means to display Christ. Now, tonight, this, is, this verse on being a peacemaker is about the character of the people who walk the earth and call themselves Christians. Tonight, we'll deal with the character of the world and how it responds to people who act like Jesus. And the world has a very definite response to people who live the life that believers are supposed to live. 
you see, God doesn't judge us by how good we perform. God does not judge us by how well I preach or you teach or you sing. God does not judge us by our talents. God judges us by our hearts. Do we have the heart of a peacemaker? Is our desire that people be at peace with God and at peace with one another? I want to ask you to turn back a few pages to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4 and verse 11. 1 John 4 and verse 11. Unless you want to edit the Bible, this is still there. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, except for those we don't really want to love. You won't find that even in the Amplified. We ought to love one another, period. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Drop down to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. So I can't love somebody. Yes, you can. How can I do that? Because God first loved you when you weren't lovable. Because you can do what God did for you. You can show the same thing in your life that God showed you. Unconditional love. Verse 20. If anyone says, or someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Can I tell you something? That One thing that lost people know about the church, lost people know the church is supposed to look like Jesus. And they know that we are supposed to act like Jesus and be like Jesus, and when they see us not being that way, then they don't want to have anything to do with the church. The greatest hindrance to the church is not the lottery, it is not alcohol, it is not drugs. The greatest hindrance to the church is within the walls of the church. It is our unwillingness to love one another and to forgive one another and to be at peace with one another. We like to build walls. We like to put people in categories. And if you just took... Verse 19 and verse 20 of 1 John chapter 4, it would wipe out most of the people sitting in churches today in Albany, Georgia, because they're just some people we're not going to love. It's either the color of their skin or the side of town they live on or something else keeps us from loving people. And we say, well, I'm here. And you, listen, you can sing all the hymns you want to sing. You can memorize the hymn book. You can serve. You can be in WMU. You can be in every missions organization in the world. But if you don't love people, God's Word says you are not saved. Period. He says, he's a liar. If you love God and you hold prejudice and hate in your heart, I want to tell you something. You don't have a problem with me. You got a problem with God's word. You are lying. You do not love God. You can sing about him. You can talk about him. You can preach about him. You can teach about him. But if you have hatred in your heart towards somebody for any reason and you cannot forgive them, then my friends, you're a liar and you're going to hell. 
I don't know how God can make it any clearer. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And who's the father of liars? Satan. So that means you're identified with the devil. If I say I can't love somebody, I can't get along with somebody, then what I'm saying is I'm not really saved. Now I want to tell you something. I get along a lot better with some lost people in town than I do with some Christians. And that's sad. I probably can get along better with some people who don't ever plan to darken the door of this church than I can with some pastors in this town because they don't want anything to do with me. I want to ask you something. If you can't speak to a brother, how can you go tell your church you care about lost people? You can't. It's that simple. I mean, let's put all the facades down, let's put all the PR down, let's put all the bull down, and let's just call it what it is. It's ungodliness. It's ungodliness. It's not like Jesus. You see... It's not just enough to take the word literally. We need to take the word seriously. God says that if you say you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. Turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 and verse 34. John 13 and verse 34. Hey, most lost people, if they walked into churches on a particular Wednesday night, they'd find a business meeting where people were fussing and fighting and fuming and they wouldn't see anything of this verse in that church. And we wonder why they don't want to come. And we wonder why they're not interested in the gospel. John 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Is that a clear statement? This way means yes. Wait, is that a clear statement? By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So I just can't love them. Well, you need to get on your knees until you can because I want to tell you, God had every right to look down at you and to look down at me and say, I can't love them. Not after what they've done. I can't love them. So, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I'm basically a good person. The Word of God says your righteousness is as filthy as rags in the eyes of God. God had every right, would have been just to do it, and nobody would have had a complaint if he said, you know what, I just can't love that world. I'm just going to forget about it. I'm going to let them all go to hell. He would have been right to do it. But he didn't. He loved us. And so let's look at the ministry and the message of a peacemaker. First of all, it's a message of reconciliation. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want you to see the number of times that the word reconciliation, which is an identical word to peacemaker, I mean, it's the same idea, or reconciled, appears in 2 Corinthians 5.18. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the ministry of the church, Paul says, is the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, there are four things here I want you to see. Number one, we've been reconciled to God. God delivered us from wrath. God delivered us from sin. God delivered us from death. God delivered us from hell. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are messengers of reconciliation to a lost world. We are ambassadors of Christ. We are Christ representatives in this world of reconciliation. Our ministry and our message is one of reconciliation. You can become reconciled to God. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have your sin debt paid. You can have it rolled away and rolled on to Christ. You can find peace and joy and happiness and cleansing. That's our message. Our message is not about politics. Our message is about the cross. We have a message of reconciliation. Number three, Christians are to be reconciled to one another. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Christians are to be reconciled to one another. Now remember, oftentimes in the Beatitudes, Jesus takes the Beatitudes, one sentence, and then he amplifies it or applies it later on in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, in verse 23, he talks about what it means to be a peacemaker in this matter of reconciliation. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there, while you're worshiping, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go, first to be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Now let me give you a couple of statements here. The acceptability of my gift is determined by the acceptability of my heart. What God is saying there is that the acceptability of my gift, my offering, my worship, my service, my teaching, my preaching, the acceptability of whatever I give to God, determined by the acceptability of my heart. If my heart is not acceptable to God, then my worship is not acceptable to God. You see, it's impossible to walk with God and not be right with a brother. He says that this matter of peacemaking and reconciliation is tied to worship. The quality of my gift is determined by the quality of the giver of the gift. What my heart is like, where I am, what I'm doing, how I'm responding. Now, here, here's a principle. Let's say you and I are on opposite poles. You cannot get closer to an object, that being the cross of Christ. We cannot get closer to an object and at the same time not get closer to one another. Does that make sense? I mean, if I'm standing over here and you're standing over there and the cross is in the middle, then if I'm moving toward the cross and if you're moving toward the cross, then we cannot both be moving toward the cross without at the same time being moving closer together and more in harmony with one another, more in unity with one another. Now, I'm not sure we want to think about this, and I'm not sure what it would do to our churches, except I know if we would do it, we'd have revival. I want you to think what it would be like if the choir couldn't sing 
until every member of the choir had gotten everything right that they did, that they needed to get it right with. But when we showed up at church on Sunday, the thing we had to do is make sure we were right with one another and right with God before there was ever any singing or ever any playing. What would happen in our Sunday school classes if every Sunday school teacher went to the detail of examining his heart before God or her heart before God and saying, God, if there is something in my heart against somebody else, I will not teach today until it is right with you, until I am right with them. What if every pastor in town would say, I will not preach today until it is right between me and my brother? What will I do? Well, I don't know when church would start. It probably wouldn't have started at 9.30 and won't start at 11. But I can tell you this, when it started, God would be there. God would be there. Now, there's some reasons why it won't happen. Number one is pride. Because a lot of this is not unique. Number one is pride. I, I'm just not going to do it. Anybody's going to do it, they can do it. I'm not going to do it. Pride will keep us from doing that because we're more concerned about our image than we are about what's right. Secondly, we want people to think we're more spiritual than we are. We want people to think we're more spiritual than we are. I mean, after all, if we start going around and saying, you know, man, let's get this right, then all of a sudden, we start going and asking for forgiveness. I mean, who knows what people will think about us? You see, what happens is we come to church and through the years we learn how to put on our facades and we learn how to put on our show and we learn how to wear our spiritual makeup and we don't ever get down to the core issues of dealing with our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. In fact, we don't have a growing relationship with God if our relationship with one another is not getting better. And so number four, peacemakers lead the way. Remember that your brother has something against you. What do you do? You get up and go do something about it. Now, folks, Christians build, Christians build bridges, not barriers. They look for ways to build bridges, not barriers. If we're going to be peacemakers, then we need to drain the moats and bring people together. A lot of moats built up in Albany, Georgia. A lot of moats built up around churches. Churches won't cooperate because somebody baptizes a different way than they baptize or thinks a little differently about the Holy Spirit than this church thinks about the Holy Spirit. Rather than agreeing on essentials, we just build fences and build walls. Peacemakers have to find ways to build bridges means that the peacemaker has to take the first step. And I want to tell you something. That's not the easiest step you'll ever take. It is not easy to take the step of a peacemaker. It is not often popular to take the step of a peacemaker. It is not often easy to stand on the side of those who have been wronged and say, this is wrong and we will not tolerate we're going to be God's people in this world. And we better have the ministry Jesus said he had when he came to bind up the brokenhearted and to minister to those who were cast down, discouraged. Jesus came to people that needed a physician, 
recognize their need. Now, there's an important little side note, and it's there in your notes because we don't have time this morning. But let me, let me just give you a little hint here. This would help you a whole lot and probably help everybody else. If you've got a problem with somebody and they don't know it, don't tell them. Okay? That's not being spiritual. That's not what Jesus said. If you've got a problem with somebody and they don't know it, then you get it right with God and leave it alone. Look at the verse in your notes, Mark 11, 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, now remember this is different than Matthew chapter 5, if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. If I've got something in my heart and it's against somebody and they don't know it, then I need to deal with it with God and I need to move on. I need to tear up my IOUs. I need to deal with the issue and move on. Now, what Jesus is talking about is if you remember that somebody has something against you. Now, he's not talking about being paranoid. I've met people who they walk around the halls of church. They didn't speak to me today. I wonder if they don't like me anymore. I walked in Sunday school class and they didn't offer me a second cup of coffee. I must have offended them. And they just get paranoid. I mean, they walk around and they look like they got the nervous shakes. And I'm talking about you are in prayer, you're in worship, and God brings to mind. Now remember, you remember. Who helped you remember in the act of worship? When you're worshiping God, God will speak to you and say, you remember that problem? You remember that issue? You remember that situation? You remember that person? You remember that event? I want you to go straighten that out. You don't have to go hunting for something to confess. God will convict you. Trust me on this. God will convict you of what needs to be confessed and what you need to get right. There's a time when you go and deal with it. Now let me give you quickly these principles. Number one, don't keep score. God's the only true judge. Don't keep score. I mean, there are some people that they're historical. They remember everything anybody ever did against them. You know, uh, I remember, you know, five years ago, somebody, and 10 years ago, and 20 years ago, get over it and get a life and move on. I mean, just go on with your life. Quit wearing a chip on your shoulder. Quit being bitter. Quit being hung up about it. Well, you don't know what they did to me. Well, I tell you what, they didn't nail you to a cross, and you weren't sinless. So whatever they did, get over it. Put it behind you. And by the way, quit talking about it. Because everybody's tired of hearing it. Just move on. Number two, don't assume anything. Now, in the same way of getting over it, don't assume that if something's happened and there's been a breach that time heals all wounds, it may not. And if there's a strain or a change in a relationship, you don't need to assume that it's just going to be over. Number three, don't justify yourself. Don't justify, don't justify yourself. Here's how you justify yourself. I just want you to know, brother, that I forgive you, but you know, you did as much bad as I did in that situation. There's no yeah buts in this. In this, you eat crow and you eat all of it. 
You eat the wings, you eat the beaks, you eat the feet, and you like it. You don't go and say, well, I tell you, brother, I'm here to forgive you and get it right with God, but before we're out of here, I'm going to one more time state my position on this point. No, that's not asking for forgiveness. That's going to argue your point. Go and don't justify yourself. Number four, don't gossip about the situation. Proverbs 16, 28, a perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Proverbs 26, 20, for lack of wood, the fire goes out and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. You know what gossip is? Let me explain gossip to you. Gossip is sharing something with someone who is neither part of the problem or part of the solution. That's what gossip is. It's sharing something with someone who is neither part of the problem nor part of the solution. So don't gossip about the situation. Uh, you know, I have seen people do this, and, and here's how we gossip in the church. We sanctify our gossip. I mean, we're not like those people. You know, we're not National Enquirer in our mentality. Here's how we gossip. Here's our prayer list today. I want you to pray for brother and sister so-and-so. They're having a lot of problems, and we're concerned about them, and we got real needs, and we need to... I don't need to share a lot of details here, but let me go ahead and tell you a few so you can pray intelligently. Oh, we love to bathe gossip in a prayer attitude. I want you to pray about somebody. Here's what they did to me. Blah, 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 blah. That's gossip. God doesn't honor even if you're right, and they're all wrong. Number five, deal with the problem, don't attack the person. Deal with the problem, don't attack the person. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Deal with the problem, don't attack the person. <laughs> Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, you know, I, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I'm sorry for what happened, but, you know, I've got to say, you're the stupidest person I've ever met. You know, did, did, did you lose your brain at childbirth? I mean, what happened to you? I mean, you don't attack the person. And that is the hardest thing, and I want to tell you something. If you're not prayed up, and if you're not filled with the Spirit, the thing that you will do, you will go for the jugular on the person. The hardest thing for me to do in a conflict and in a confrontation, and I do not always succeed at this, the hardest thing for me to do is to keep the focus on the problem and not on the person. You see, we have a tendency in our culture to say there's a problem, and so the way to deal with the problem is to destroy the person. That's not the way to deal with the problem. The way to deal with it is to deal with the problem and not be sarcastic about the person. Number six, do it sooner rather than later. To reconcile means to be restored to one another. Do it sooner rather than later. You ever wondered why Jesus said through the Apostle Paul, don't let the sun go down on your wrath? You know why? Because bitterness grows best in the dark. Bitterness grows best. 
unresolved and undealt with. Bitterness and hatred, strife and jealousy and unforgiveness always finds fertile soil in which to grow. A peacemaker can be angry and sin not. One of our roles as a church is to do all we can to be peacemakers. If we're going to be a church that God blesses, we're going to be a church that has the anointing and the power of God on it, then we have to be a church that is about the ministry of reconciliation. It is not necessarily a role or a position that we would pick for ourselves. But it is the right role for us. Because with our privileged position in the kingdom comes a greater responsibility to make sure that things are right between brothers. And that things are right in this community. And we quit covering up coming to churches and gathering by the thousands on Sundays when we really don't want to get along with other people. Let's call it what it is. Sin. Let's deal with it the way we need to deal with it. And let's build bridges. When we do, we will be most like Jesus. Francis prayed, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there's hatred, let me show love. Is that the way we want to live? If we want a blessed life, we don't have an option. And if we want a blessed life, if we want to walk around in the fullness and the power of Jesus Christ, we got to love one another. And that means that the love of God given to me, I can give to you. And that means that that love being shared is more important than who's right and who's wrong. It means that the gospel is the gospel of reconciliation, one with another. I want to ask you to pray with me if you would, please. We've gone long this morning, and I appreciate your patience. If you're here this morning, and you have never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then you can be reconciled to God today. And I want to ask you right where you are, just to get up from your seat, just find your way to the front, and I want us to have an opportunity to share with you how you can be reconciled to God, how you can find forgiveness and peace through the blood of Jesus Christ for your sin. So right now where you are, I just want to ask you to stand up. Maybe you've heard the gospel. Maybe you were here last week. Maybe you know you need to do something, and, and you've not done it yet, and you knew last week you needed to do it. I'm just going to ask you to just step out. Just come on. Come up and just say, I, I need to be reconciled to God. I, I, I need to get my life right with God. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do.
those of you that are church members, we've come to worship today. But before we come back to worship tonight, we may need to make a phone call, make a visit, or write a letter, get some things cleared up. So that when we come back tonight, we come back with the blessing and the power of God on us. Because we've done what he's told us to do. Our goal is to be peacemakers. Our goal is to say, look, it's not about who's right and wrong. It's about us honoring Jesus Christ. And so today, I want to ask you in your own life personally, and for the life of this church corporately, and for this community collectively, would you pray that we would be peacemakers? The only people we need to be at war with is the devil. And even to the devil's crowd, we need to say, you can be reconciled to God. And Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He said, the battle's over. Everything that's necessary to bring man back into peace and fellowship with God has been taken care of. I've done what I was sent to do. Now he's left us here with that same message. And so, Father, we come to you in this day and in this hour. And we ask you, Father, that we might be peacemakers. Lord, your promise is that we will be sons of God. We will have the character, the qualities, the makeup, of godly people. Lord, forgive us for so many times coming into your house and thinking that we could sweep something under the rug or we could put on enough of a game face to get through another hour when in reality there was business to be done with a brother or sister in Christ so that we could in fact come to worship with pure hearts. Use us, Father, in ways we cannot even begin to understand so that the name of Jesus Christ and the gospel message might go forth without apology, without any error, to all men everywhere who need to know good news. In Jesus' name.